Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. On today's episode, we look at the world of films with Andreas Rauld, who together with his team has decades of filmmaking experience. Holly had loved making films about itself, so we all feel we have some idea of how that happens, but it's less clear how the finances work. We go into a lot of detail about how films are financed in EIS and how investors get returns. We also discuss the effects of the current COVID crisis, both on distribution and production. If you have an interest in filmmaking or film finance, then this is for you. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today's guest on the podcast is Andreas Raal, who's the CEO of Sovereign Media. Welcome to the podcast, Andreas. Thank you very much, Brian, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. I think we'll start with getting to know a little bit about you. So can you tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? So I, I come from Norway, so I, I actually started in uh, television uh, in Norway as a TV presenter on a Saturday night uh, show when I was 14. So um, from that, my interest in media and, and EIS, which has come into that, came from when I came to London as part of my master degree in uh, audiovisual management. And I started working at a company called Scala Productions. Uh, and we, uh, we did a film called Ladies in Lavender with uh, Maggie Smith and Judy Dench. And uh, it's a wonderful sort of independent film company where you walk through the doors and it's, it was stacked to the roof with uh, 35 millimeter film reels and screenplays and all the things that I really liked about the independent filmmaking. And from there, I, I, I set up my uh, company, Sovereign, and uh, uh, I started working with some uh, quite prominent hedge funds, uh, some professional investors advising on uh, film investments. Through that process, I met uh, my colleague, Donald Rosenfeld, uh, through a mutual friend, uh, a lawyer in New York. Donald's background was from, uh, he was the president of Merchant Ivory, and they produced films of um, very, very high quality, uh, like Howard's End, Remains of the Day, A Room with a View, but with a business model that uh, was very attractive in terms of keeping the costs extremely low and uh, lots of skin in the game for everyone involved, including the management, the actors. And this was a model that was very attractive to the, to the professional investors, to the hedge funds at the time, because it's fit the model of um, their other investments would, would be more sort of natural resource investments. Then uh, I think uh, we started looking at refining the merchant ivory investment model uh, still further. And uh, that was basically raising private money from individuals or professional investors, also including some foundations, in particular in the US. We were making a film in the UK, and uh, that's when the investors started asking about the enterprise investment scheme, which we had come across uh, anyway. Uh, and since we were shooting a film in the UK, and we, um, we had uh, a group of investors uh, based here, we set up the EIS uh, for, for their purpose. Uh, so it was more driven by uh, investor request or investment demand and um, grew that from then one film to many films. And then that eventually uh, became our EIS fund in investing across uh, multiple films. And that's effectively how we became uh, an EIS fund manager. And uh, I would say 
probably the difference between traditional fund managers is probably that with our background, we are much more hands-on in, in the process of, um, of operations of the, of the underlying companies that we invest into. So uh, th- that's sort of in short our background. I think we're going to focus a lot on film investing in this in this podcast. I know when I started looking at film investing, it's something I felt I kind of knew about. But as I dug into it, I realized that we've all got an idea from what we've seen in Hollywood, but that's far from the full picture. And I didn't really understand some of the, d- the important details about how film financing actually works. So perhaps we can start with chatting through about how a, a film actually gets made and maybe start with the role of producer, which I think, again, is something people know about, but don't perhaps understand properly what a producer is. Yes. Uh, and, and the role of the producer is, is very important and, uh, and probably one that um, is also quite difficult to understand in a way because of the way if you look at the film nowadays there might be 22 different producer credits on a film so uh, trying to understand what what do all these people do if anything on who actually is responsible for making the film but in a nutshell the the producer of the film uh, is uh, the one who is in charge of originating the film so they, the easiest way to explain it is that they are there from the very beginning, from optioning the, the rights to the film, which is typically a book. So uh, acquiring the rights, developing the screenplay, then taking the film through pre-production once the screenplay is done. That includes hiring a director, uh, hiring the actors, and then taking the film through the production cycle, including the physical production of the film and the editing and then ultimately then also through the distribution uh, cycle, which means putting in the film into the cinemas, uh, then onto pay television, free television, streaming platforms, of course, now, which is very prominent. It's really the person who's there from the very beginning of the film to the very end of the film. And so it's, it's distinctly different from the director of the film, which is probably more uh, publicized figure in terms of what you would read about in the press, uh, etc., and would be promoting the film. But the director is then hired by the producers. Now, there are a few exceptions, of course, um, who I would say probably as a handful, but uh, people like Steven Spielberg, would have, which have the, would have a very different role in, in the production of his own films. But uh, it, typically, uh, that is the, the role of the producer. Then. Obviously, you would have executive producers who might be someone who brings uh, finance to the table, for example, or associate producers. And I would say also some distinctions in Europe, just to make it more complicated, <laughs> is that um, you have co-producers because uh, in Europe, co-productions is, is very common, very piecing together small pieces of finance from uh, subsidies, government grants, uh, government incentives, and it might be five or six different countries. Uh, we just finished a film, which was a co-production. Uh, it was Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and Canada. But combining those countries, we uh, had 94% of the budget financed out of uh, various institutions for the film. So it's extremely effective if you can make it work, but it's also very time-consuming because it takes a lot of time to, to put these things together. I can, I can imagine it's always um, 
juggling the different parties who've got, got different interests or different timescales can be quite hard. Can probably be like herding cats at times. Um, so the producers, which historically has been kind of your sort of role, gets the project together. Once they've got the project together, I think we've all got a rough idea again of how a film is made. But what sort of how how long does that take? What's the key parts? You sort of mentioned a couple of them earlier. Yes, uh, I would say usually the the part where investors come in is usually for the production of the film. Now, the, the key part is really the development of the film, which is um, when you develop the screenplay, effectively like building a house, you're developing the blueprint, and you're the architect, and you're developing the blueprint from, uh, for the film. And uh, if you don't get the screenplay right, you're not, it becomes very, very difficult to make a good film. If you get the key parts right, which is the screenplay being the first one, and then uh, the second one being the actors, the right actors for the film, uh, and not just any actor in terms of a name, a big star for the sake of having a big star, but the right person to play that role is incredibly important. Once those two elements are in place, then you have the, a, a solid blueprint to actually go and make the film. Uh, without those two elements in place, I would say you, you're limiting yourself very much in what you can achieve. And the development is often uh, a part which is very difficult to understand from investors and um, because it's a very speculative process where you, uh, you buy a book and you develop a screenplay. And, and this process can uh, and very often does take many, many years. And um, even with big, um, big studios and big directors, um, they might have a film that takes three, four years, might take seven years, might take 10 years to actually get the screenplay right because it's so important. And then often what you will get is that you will get pressure because you want to see a return of investment into the development. And therefore they want to put the film into the production so that they can actually recoup some money. And therefore you put a film into production where the screenplay isn't in the right shape. And unfortunately then the results are accordingly. They, you don't get the best film that you could have had. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's a long process. But once you start the production and once you enter the pre-production, then things go pretty fast. So typically um, a film production shoot for an independent film could be like 40, 45 days, uh, depending on the budget of the film. If you're talking a big Hollywood film, of course, it can be much, much longer. You can look at a film like The Revenant uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio, which... I think had a production period of six months. So, um, and, and obviously <laughs> Lord of the Rings films, etc., much bigger productions, but you're also talking a very different price brackets where films cost several hundred million dollars. Yeah, they're not the sort of things that EIS investors will get anywhere near really, are they? I mean, we're really, we're really focusing on the independent film industry here. Yes, uh, I think, uh, and uh, for me as well, that's, uh, that's the area where you can make money in terms of uh, Hollywood film investments have uh, a, a very different background. There's been a lot of investors in that space. And uh, I think it, because the costs are so high associated with making those films, it becomes also very difficult to make money from it. Uh, and typically also you will have so many different parties involved. Um, so investors will sit very far in the background and it would take a long time for them to actually receive any money back versus making a film for a um, much smaller budget, not necessarily any 
lesser quality. But the, the key is then really to make the best possible film. So I would say from our perspective, uh, if you look at what I would say our mandate is, is to make a $50 million film for $5 million. And that's where there's an opportunity for investors to to, to see a quick return on investment and then also some ongoing profits from it. Yeah, yeah. And and, then, and the way you do that is the way you, what you mentioned earlier in terms of rather than paying a big star a big salary, the big star will actually get a cut of the proceeds. So if the film does well, they'll do well. But if it doesn't, they don't. Yes, it's uh, controlling the costs. It's, uh, and I think controlling the cost is reliant on controlling the quality because um, if you're making films that are not attractive to be in, uh, then the salary will, you might still get the big star, but they will want their, their salary. The upfront fee will be quite large. Uh, versus if you're making a film of quality, uh, which they are attracted to be in and want to be in that film, uh, be it a particular story that they like or a director that they want to work with, then their motivation is different. Then the motivation isn't is, isn't then the paycheck, it's being involved in creating something great. So that kind of suggests about how you think about finding film projects in terms of it's not a case of you, you just pick a random book just because it's a bestseller. You're obviously looking for something very particular when you try and source a film project. What is it you really look for? Well, first of all, it, it, it has to be something that connects with me and Donald uh, that we find interesting and that we can see actually becoming a, a cinematic film. So something that you can watch in the cinema. That doesn't necessarily just have to be period drama also, although Merchant Agri was very famous for period dramas. But it could be any kind of film, but it has to be something that is that we find unique. It's a unique story. It's a story that's told in a specific way that's interesting. And it has to be something that we want to watch. If we don't want to watch it, it becomes very difficult to convince any other people to be a part of it, foregoing very large salaries up front. So we have to believe in it and we, we have to be able to sit across the table from the parties that want to be involved, including actors and directors, and saying, well, you're not really going to be earning your normal salary here, but we're going to create something great. Uh, so unless we believe in it, we're not going to get anyone else to believe in that in the same way. So it's, it's really driven by quality. I would say the quality then drives the cost control. And obviously, you need experience in doing this. Uh, I would say... Um, between me and uh, and Donald, we have over forty five years of, uh, of of doing this, but the background is essential. I would say that the skill of actually making the film is really really important because so that also brings confidence from the people that are getting involved on the basis of um, largely being remunerated on the uh, on the back end from the profit from the film that they are dealing with people that know what they're doing. So it's, uh, I would say, this, the skill set of, um, of actually making the film becomes very important. Finding people who have a track record of actually delivering is the same in film as you do have in, in, the, in, in probably other parts of the EIS industry, where if you're punting on someone without a track record, you might do okay, but it's not probably the best bet if you've got other people out there who do have that track record and who you can rely on and probably in film you've probably got a better opportunities for people with track record than you perhaps if in eis people 
may start one or two companies. They rarely start five or ten, whereas there's plenty of people I think in film have done five or ten films or more. Absolutely. And, and I would also look at uh, what, what position have they worked in in the past. It's, um, For example, uh, I would say if you're working... Uh, on an aircraft, it's a it's a very diff- different position uh, if you're the captain of the of the plane, or if you are the mechanic on the plane that wants to fly the plane. So it's uh, that doesn't mean that the mechanic cannot fly the plane if he acquires the right skills to captain the uh, the, the flight. So uh, it goes through the training and through the process of actually doing that. But it's uh, just having worked on a film in a capacity doesn't qualify you to actually produce the film. That would be the sort of analogy I would give. We've reached the stage of you've had all the filming. You've got, um, as you say, all these cans of film, which you really like. Well, there's probably not much film anymore. It's probably all digital, isn't it? It's all digital now, yes. Uh, there are there are still uh, some dinosaurs like ourselves that uh, do very much like to work with film as the as a 35mm film. And of course, you have 70mm. But... There are some directors that have still uh, committed to buying a certain amount of stock of 35mm film. So it is still in existence and it is still, uh, I would say, a little bit different in the sort of the, the texture. Um, you, you're talking analog versus digital, but uh, obviously the digital is by far the dominant um, medium to, to record film and also for distribution, which is the, the next step in, in the value chain for a film. There are no cinemas now, apart from maybe a few in the UK, that would have a 35mm projector to screen physical film. That They will all be digital. Yeah. So before you get to actually distributing the film, you also got a post-production phase, which I think can often be longer or is usually longer than the actual filming part. And that's where, well, t- tell us what happens at that part and how long that usually takes. Yeah, I would say it's much longer. If you have a, say, a 40, 45 day shooting, the editing can be anywhere between six and nine months. Uh, depends a little bit on how, how smooth the editing process is and how well you're set up during the production. So some people, like ourselves, we, we like to have an editor involved during the production process and to actually make sure that we have all the material and to look at the footage as it comes through. Some people will not like that, and some people will make different choices and like to have the editor only involved once they've finished the film and can effectively hand over a, a box of footage to look at. And, but it's also the process of uh, putting sound to the um, sound effects, music, uh, which comes at the end, uh, which is effectively so important in creating the mood, uh, creating the involvement in the film. Then suspending the disbelief, keeping the audience in that world when they're watching the film. So once all that hard work is done, you get the the day with the red carpet at some nice cinema, and the film is released. And there's a kind of standard pattern, I suppose, to releasing. And and these are all sources of revenue for return, which is, of course, where investors... Um, I mean, we all like the, the sort of interest in films generally, but getting the returns is ultimately what we're we're here for. So, how do investors get returns um, or get revenue on on the films? 
Yes. Uh, well, it's interesting as we are recording this uh, podcast. It's twenty um, sixth of August, and uh, we just well, we're coming out of a very difficult crisis. Not not just for the film business, but uh, but globally from the pandemic, and uh, it's far from over in in that sense. But but you're right. Traditionally, you would start with the red carpet. Now we were supposed to be in Cannes for uh, for the film festival in May, and Cannes was cancelled altogether. Venice is going ahead, Toronto is going ahead, but in very different formats than previously. And we're looking probably at the first, uh, I would say, normal physical film festival being Berlin, twenty twenty one in February. So. Um, uh, the red carpets are, uh, I would say, much <laughs> further apart. Although you did uh, today, actually, is the opening of uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. That would be, of course, be very interesting to see how that uh, performs. But I think there has been very encouraging signs from um, the reopening of cinemas in in the US and across the world. Where uh, in the UK, we have about fifty percent of the cinemas are now reopened. Uh, there was just a Russell Crowe film uh, that opened with very encouraging numbers in, in the US. Uh, so we're still seeing uh, seeing how this plays out. It's still to be seen. But um, in terms of investors, traditionally, this is the nice part of being part of the launch of a film is, of course, the red carpet and the associated film festivals. And uh, but cinema isn't necessarily from uh, where you're making money in the theaters. And, and that comes very much back to how uh, the revenues are divided with the income, because um, obviously the cinema owners will take the majority of the income from the cinema. So in the US, it's typically 50%. In, in the UK, it's even higher. It might be 60%, or 65% sometimes. So um, obviously also what you're seeing with the pandemic is a change in this pattern, the traditional distribution window, uh, which is still being adhered to uh, in large degree in the UK um, by, by some cinema change like, uh, like Picture Houses. Uh, you still need a 16-week window where the film plays exclusively in the theatres. The, what the pandemic has, of course, brought forward is the collapse of these windows. So you're talking much shorter windows in the future. You see, um, you see deals being done with uh, AMC cinemas in the, in the US. Uh, and this is obviously going to change quite a lot going forward. Where now, during the pandemic, um, the content owners have been able, uh, which they weren't before, to see the numbers of what they're receiving from releasing these uh, digitally straight through the, through the audience. Uh, this includes uh, Disney films like Mulan, uh, and obviously people are now very familiar with Netflix, where the whole distribution window will be covered by Netflix, and they might put it into the cinemas, but it might be a very limited cinematic release. But from an investor's point of view, the cinemas are slightly distorting the view, because you're looking at maybe some big numbers being made in the box office. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily uh, equal the amount coming back to the investors in a film. So uh, the way to look at it from an investor point of view is it's a more of a marketing uh, exercise to receive higher value for the film further down the line in the distribution chain, which is uh, television 
which is the most important uh, income source for uh, for feature films. And of course, now streaming. And that is, um, there's no doubt that this has um, really had a big impact uh, on um, on film distribution. Netflix, obviously, um, over the last five years, what uh, what what they've achieved. Now Disney Plus launching right in the UK, right at the uh, beginning of the lockdown, with uh, quite extraordinary amount of content available to consumers, especially people with children like myself, <laughs> uh, who uh, can now watch Frozen, Frozen Two, etc., everything uh, at home. And so I would say for for investors, this becomes uh, a much more important uh, area to look at for returns. Than, than necessarily with the box office numbers. So what you'll be looking at is uh, what, what is it that you uh, can achieve on a worldwide basis from the home entertainment market? Uh, and, and that's the important part. So uh, we always focus on the home entertainment numbers. So we make sure that if the film is uh, made and released, it will always go in the cinema because we're making cinematic films. But we make sure that the budget or the cost that we're spending is always less than what we will make in the home entertainment market through television deals worldwide, if it's in Latin America, in Asia, in Europe, uh, and in the US. So that, I would say that's the key for investors, and, and that's also why you have to be so conscious of costs. So m- making a film for $50 million and saying that this is going to gross $200 million in the box office, uh, it's all fine, it's, but it's highly speculative because then you are talking about an audience. Are the audience going to come? Are they going to buy a cinema ticket? Um, are they going to go and watch the film? Are they going to buy the DVD? Uh, r- rather than uh, an environment which is a business-to-business environment, which is your relationships with BBC, with uh, Channel 4, uh, Netflix, uh, etc. So that becomes much more important from uh, monetizing the, uh, the content that you own. So you mentioned video on demand sort of uh, providers there, such as Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus now, who in some ways are revolutionizing our sort of media consumption, whether it be film or TV. And in one sense, that makes it feel like a kind of golden age for producers in terms of you have this demand for a product that, probably exceeds anything we've had before, correct me if I'm wrong. But at the same time, from a financial perspective, my understanding it's not completely straightforward sort of dealing with these guys in terms of sort of maximizing the best return. I, I know I've spoken to producers also, well, if you get the wrong deal, you just get very little out of Netflix relative to production costs. For an investor perspective, how do you actually manage getting good deals from these people? It's a very, very important point. Um, and in a way, it also comes back to what I talked about, the visibility of the film in terms of marketing costs or putting the film into the cinemas. Uh, and this is not to undermine the cinematic market. The cinema market is very, very important. Uh, over the last three years, um, last year in 2020, the, the movie ticket sales uh, on a worldwide basis was $42 billion dollars. So it gives you an idea of the size of the market for people going to the cinema. It's a, it's a massive market. Um, but um, as, as I said, there are costs associated with it. Uh, the latest figures I've seen, uh, given the COVID 
situation was that uh, as of 18th of August this year, the global box office had earned uh, $6.7 billion in 2020. Uh, that's versus $26.4 billion in the previous years up to this point in the calendar. So obviously, it's a massive impact on uh, on earnings. Now, when you talk about dealing with the streaming platforms like like your Netflix, it's a very different approach. Uh, one is the visibility. So your film is very easily lost in the content that goes on there. How do you know that it actually the people will watch it and the people find it in the in the vast amount of content there? But it's also the deal that you're making uh, with, um, with 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 the likes of Netflix. Are you selling the film outright to them? Which is typically the way that you would do it. Is that uh, because it's not going in the cinema? It doesn't have the traditional value chain of going in the cinema to television, uh, etc., and video on demand. So there isn't uh, the same longevity of the income streams isn't present which means that you are getting a lump upfront fee, which offsets all the income that you were supposed to receive. And now often this fee is then split into various installments over many years. But uh, it means that you've sold your film. You don't own that film anymore. Uh, You have no control of it in perpetuity. It can be recut, it can be redone, but you have no residual income for it. So... This is, uh, I would say, uh, probably a bit of a frustration for people that uh, see it as a sort of golden opportunity to have buyers out there. But the, the good thing is that there is a lot of competition in this area. It isn't just Netflix. You have Apple TV+, Plus, you have Disney+, Plus, you have uh, HBO Max from Warner Brothers. There's, there's a lot of streaming services available. And now HBO Max hasn't come to the UK yet, but uh, it, it will be coming. And of course, Amazon as well. And uh, a lot of these um, uh, these market participants are also uh, supporting the cinematic model of releasing films in the cinema. They just want the film for their platform when the window comes for uh, what we call SVOD, which is subscription VOD, which is effectively like your Netflix model where you pay a certain fee every month and then you can watch all the content there. Important thing, and this again goes on um, back to the experience, is um, knowing the deal that you strike because you can you can strike a deal which you are effectively bought out and you don't own the film anymore, or you can license the film for a certain period of time and you receive the income for it. So I would say, uh, as always, the ownership of the content is so important. So owning content and building a library of content is very important. And that's where you see the real uh, long-term value for investors as well. So this is more like uh, investing in Netflix as or investing in Disney as they are building content libraries. Uh, that that's uh, I would say would be my um, my view on it, where where I see real value for investors rather than sort of one of films. Yes. So when you talk about licensing versus purchasing, presumably the, the the sort of video on demand uh, or the streamers, they want ownership. Um, it sounds like kind of that is their default. How do you get the leverage to make them accept a license deal? Or are they more open than it sounds like? Well, I, I think 
with the launch of Netflix, you probably wouldn't get that option. Um, but it, it's competition. So it's, um, and again, if you create a quality product that is in demand, then you will have many bidders for that product. And of course, you have all the traditional Hollywood studios involved. Uh, Paramount, Sony, Disney, you no know, owns Fox as well, and Warner Brothers. So it's... Um, there, there are plenty of buyers, and this is not even touching on the independent distributors uh, that uh, will be very important to get films out there. But the industry is very heavily dominated by the Hollywood studios. There is no doubt. Uh, but the uh, emergence of Netflix has really shaked things up, and it's it's really good to see uh, competition uh, in the marketplace, which really uh, very deep pockets. Apple, for example, as well is. Uh, extraordinary cash resources that uh, could outbid anyone and uh, this creates a very healthy competition and benefits the owners so it's uh, it's being able to take advantage of that and knowing what deals that you want to make um, that's, that becomes important because that's where you can really look after the investor's interest as well as your own if you have aligned the interest correctly we spoke a lot about producing an individual film, but EIS investors aren't no longer allowed to actually invest in a single film production. The structure that they've got to use is a little bit different. Can you perhaps talk a little bit about the structure that people are expected to invest in now uh, and what difference that makes? So this is the changes that came into um, uh, into the EIS legislation following the patient capital review the risk to capital, which was, uh, I think, the motivation of the government was really to um, see long-term businesses being created in, in the UK. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very sensible approach versus uh, if you invest into one single company that makes a film, so effectively you're investing into one film, that film might be made and the company will be might have two directors on the board and... Um, uh, be shut down when the film is finished, but there's no long-term benefit in that. For HMRC's point of view, looking at it more now, you should be looking at it as in investing in a studio that is producing lots of content for the long term. Given the amount of money that's flown into the UK film industry through various tax breaks, it is quite remarkable that you still don't really have one big studio that owns content. Most of this content that has been created is still owned by the US studios. I think the motivation for the change here is really create uh, self-sufficient companies for the long term that can produce multiple content, multiple films. Um, and again, it will highly benefit the investors as well, because you, after say a period of uh, four to five years, depending on the spread of your investments of the underlying investee companies. If one investee company makes two or three films and you spread across, say, four or five companies, you might own 40, 50 films at the end of your investment period that are creating steady revenues. And it's a completely different uh, investment proposition uh, than investing in a single film. So I think that's, uh, I would say, very positive. And if you if you were asking me about the... Uh, the best way of investing in the in the film business, it would be a similar model like that, which we have seen in the US. The US has had that in the past and, and still have it. 
uh, where you're creating mini studios and the investors go into the, the studio company or the holding company and that creates a library of films probably very prominently was legendary uh, who sold to um, Wanda in, uh, from China for I think it was three and a half billion dollars um, so it's um, it's, it's definitely the the their approach is correct I would say in, in terms of if you look at um, fr- from the investor point of view looking at the um, Rather than looking at a single film, you're looking at creating ownership of a large library of premium content. Yeah, and presumably that has the benefit of protecting you from if the, the flops. I mean, with, with you know, you, you, I know you're trying to get the high quality and trying to get it right, but every now and then you're going to hit something that's um, just not going to work for whatever reason. And if you're investing in a company that's got 10 films or a portfolio, as you say, of 40 or 50, you can afford to have a few flops in there um, without actually killing your whole investment. Yes, uh, absolutely correct. And, um, and and again, it goes back to the, um, you know, you can look at one film and uh, say, okay, this, uh, this film has fantastic actors, fantastic directors, uh, fantastic director, and uh, has all the right element to make the, the budget is right. But how is it going to perform? It's completely speculative. Uh, you, you just do not know if the audience is going to come or not. And there are multiple examples of this, but no one knows what the, what the film is going to be performing like until you actually present it to the audience. Yeah, The Guardian had a really good article a couple of years ago about f- cinema flops, about s- films with really well-known actors that had made like £30 or £100 at the cinema. And presumably when these people got involved, they were thinking, this sounds good, but yeah, they just didn't. No, and and, and no one can tell you. Uh, it, it, and also when you're making the investment, you typically uh, at least one year ahead of the film being released. So what can happen in that year? Look at the situation that we're in now. It is uh, very difficult to make those uh, make those speculations. So therefore having this investment model of investing into a library of films is um, it's a much more sensible approach. So you touched on COVID already, perhaps more on the distribution side. Obviously, in the, in the near term, it's having a big effect of production or has had a big effect of production. But I think we're now slowly getting back to some sort of normality. Is that fair? Yes, uh, on both the production and, and distribution. Um, Fortunately, now um, I would say uh, one of the big impacts for the film industry uh, on the production side uh, is that there's so many people uh, involved in a film. So on on a film, you might have 150, 200 people working in in various positions, and the majority of them are self-employed. So uh, from the costume designer to editor to the cameraman and electricians, and obviously, this has had a huge financial impact for uh, for, for everyone involved. And um, you know, there's been some initiatives that helped that, and I think uh, been very well supported by the government. Um, and the, I would say the biggest problem now in restarting productions as people are going back. Um, is probably on the insurance side, uh, where you, it's very difficult to get insurance for COVID. 
got again uh, now, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, the UK government announced a 500 million uh, fund to uh, effectively underwrite the insurance for film and television productions. So uh, I think uh, we, we have to be extremely thankful for that, um, for, for the support that has the government has uh, provided during an unprecedented time. Uh, but uh, from from our point of view, I think we have um, we ha- we had films in production uh, when the lockdown hit. Interestingly, we had one in Sweden, which was actually probably the only country in in Europe that didn't lock down properly, like we saw here in the UK, which where we managed to complete most of the filming, apart from one actor who couldn't get out from Los Angeles, and uh, but we were able to shoot that now uh, last month. So finish that, and then starting off uh, again in uh, in Greece in September to finish the shooting. So I would say probably you're talking about four to six months that had been lost through that period. Uh, I think with films getting back on the way again, um, probably the biggest uh, fear I would say, rather than adjustment in the production process, is probably more what happens with. Um, with infections, what happens with um, uh, new outbreaks or, or even uh, controversy over safety, uh, which goes for both productions and, and the cinemas. So I think that's the biggest uh, concern that people have at the moment. Yeah, I, I've certainly read a little bit which kind of suggests that the film industry has put protocols in place for production to ins- try and ensure safety. Um, the downside of these is that Filming just takes a bit longer and perhaps might involve a bit more cost. Do you see these sort of things going on? Yes, because um, obviously the, it's, um, there's a lot more processes that you have to put in place uh, regarding COVID. And there's cost to that as well. Like uh, you will see um, uh, Formula One, for example, uh, which has restarted testing uh, everyone. Uh, on, a, on a regular basis, you have to test everyone and, and you have to do the same with a film production. And uh, it also is limiting contact between people, including actors. But it also means that, so it means that the production will take longer, but it also means that you have to operate with a smaller crew, which then is saving costs. So it's, um, I would say you, it's not exclusive. You have to find ways that you can make films with a smaller crew because you can't have so many people that you would normally uh, normally have during a production. And so uh, there isn't, I would say there are some benefits to it, but there are also some um, some drawbacks. So, um, and and I also think that we, we're still not through this. Uh, so it's hard, hard to say uh, long-term effect on this. Um, maybe we'll see it uh, maybe a year from now. It must be some relief to actually get back to filming, but as you say, we're still in that trough of uncertainty. I think where we it's very difficult to know what's going to happen in the long run. I think production's probably easier to see in one sense than distribution, because production you could imagine protocols and bubbles and keeping people safe, whereas how true distribution will pan out in the long run, particularly with respect to cinema relief release, I'm not really sure if we we can be very clear on that. No, I, I would say uh, another aspect of the pandemic which has brought in uh, is um, uh, 
uh, obviously people being stuck at home and uh, consuming a lot of content at home. But I think uh, if you go back to like the Great Depression, for example, it's a, uh, where people flock to the cinemas. And I do think that it's uh, not just the audience, but also the people involved in films might have time to reflect and look at what they are getting involved in and might be more selective. Might be, okay, I want to, actually, the films I'm making, uh, I don't like to be involved in those sort of films anymore. I want to create things of meaning, create uh, things of quality and make different choices. And I think the audience will be desperate to watch films in the cinemas. Now, most likely you will have the younger audience uh, much quicker out of the gates to go back to the cinema and the more uh, mature audience probably taking longer to feel safe in the environment of going to the cinema. I'm very optimistic in terms of the, the long-term, uh, taking a long-term view of it. I think it's, uh, there are some great possibilities and great opportunities um, that has arisen from this. And uh, although there are very strong market forces that bring people back to normal social economic behavior uh, that put, uh, humans have a very good capacity for change um, but they also have a very good capacity to go back to normal um, so <laughs> i would say uh, what will be different from this crisis than uh, or what can we learn from this crisis that we didn't learn from previous crises it, it will be interesting it's not something i can answer right now it's very hard. So on that optimistic note, we shall move on to our standard questions, which I've adapted a little bit because um, th the way of investment that you're doing is a little bit different. So what is the most recent investment or recent production that you chose to make? So we have the, the most recent one is that we expanded into investing into the television market as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have uh, teamed up with the producer of uh, War of the Worlds for BBC and ITV and uh, now expanding into that market. Uh, and that's something that I'm very excited about. Tell us about a time something went wrong and what did you learn from it? <laughs> there, there are quite a few things that, uh, that go wrong during the production of a film, I would say, uh, <laughs> that are unforeseen. And that's sort of part of being a producer is uh, learning how to deal with that on a, on a daily basis. And I can give you a very recent example, which was uh, actually on the distribution. We, we had a film called Cunningham, which is a wonderful 3D documentary film, absolutely brilliant, uh, which was released on Friday the 13th of March this year. You should have seen that coming. And obviously that was when people already were starting to stay away from the cinemas. The lockdown came 10 days later, the 23rd of March. It was the worst box office weekend for 22 years. And uh, oh <laughs> this is something that no one can predict. You spend all the money on the marketing, on the print and advertising, as we call it, to release the film for the cinema. And effectively, there's no cinema to release it into. And uh, But what happened is that there was... Um, Everyone, all the parties involved and all the stakeholders came together very quickly and the film was swiftly moved across what the, it's a fairly new concept in the UK, but it's been well established in the US, which is called premium VOD, it's a PVOD, where the films are um, effectively made available much faster through streaming. And, and actually the film did, um, did very well. I think it was uh, number seven at Kirsten Home Cinema 
at that opening weekend, but it's on all the platforms, iTunes, Apple, Microsoft, uh, everywhere. So I would say that's uh, definitely an uh, example where something went wrong, which is completely unforeseen, but, but it, it keeps you on your toes. And, and I think you can, you can always learn from it, so that, uh, which is the useful thing. So the industry that we work in is far from perfect. If you could change one thing about it, what would you change? For me, it would be diversity. That would hugely benefit the industry, having a much, much larger diverse space across in front and behind the camera. And that would be the one thing, diversity. Lockdown has done wonders for my reading, and I've got a holiday coming up soon as well. Tell us a book that you would recommend and that I should take away on holiday with me. <laughs> Naturally, doing a little bit of self promotion here. Uh, and we actually, I, I will make you aware of one book that's um, it's only coming out in February uh, by uh, Hatchet Books, but it's called Two Against Hitler by Isabel Vincent, uh, whose author we uh, already own a book called uh, Dinner with Edward, which I, Dinner with Edward, I would highly recommend. But Two Against Hitler is another book coming out in February, which we're also making a film out of. And it's an incredible story about uh, two very unlikely female heroines uh, that um, rescue uh, musicians out of uh, Nazi Germany and Austria before the Second World War. And uh, they were honored at the Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. Um, it's an incredible story. So it's, it's pitched as uh, Schindler's List meets The Sound of Music. So I highly recommend it. Okay. <laughs> well, there's two really big hits for it to live up to. So that's some reputation. What do you wish you knew when you started with Sovereign that you know now? Continuing to learn all the time is very important. And on uh, taking that approach on a daily basis to try to learn something new is important. Um, probably what I, uh, if I look at what I wish that I, you know, was probably more to trust your instincts. Um, that's, dealing with problems quickly when they arise um, as typically they will not get better so deal with it fast and deal with it according to what you feel is right and um, so trust your instincts would be my um, would be my uh, learning to my myself and I hopefully will continue to do that so that's great so if people want to find out more about sovereign and yourself where should they go well, they can obviously uh, go to our website, uh, sovereign-group.com, or uh, they can uh, see our films on sovereignfilms.co.uk. That's probably the best places to, uh, to see what we do. For investors, I would uh, recommend checking out uh, sovereign-group.com and, uh, and get in touch if they have any questions. Thank you very much for coming the, on the podcast, Andreas. That's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's, uh, Tremendous joy to, uh, to be speaking to you. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.